Thermometer, much more reliable than your feelings. High blood pressure, I've been told that uh, you don't know. You can have high blood pressure without knowing about it. Good idea then to uh, have it checked from time to time. But there is, of course, the blood pressure meter that gives you a reading. A compass, thermometer, blood pressure meter. We need something objective to evaluate reality about us. It's like that with our faith as well. We need an objective reference point, something that's not based on our instincts or our opinions or feelings or even, even ultimately on our experience. And of course, as we just sang wonderful words of life, the objective reference point is God's Word. Last week, we unpacked something about the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church. And I considered that uh, some sermons from the book of Acts where we have the beginning of the church would be timely at this time in, in the life of our church. But on the day of Pentecost, it says that there were 120 believers together in the upper room. The Holy Spirit descended upon them with astounding phenomena, so much so that it attracted the attention of the city, the people outside, and they demanded an explanation. And so Peter explains to them. Uh, some of them were joking and said, these people have had too much wine. Peter says, no. It's not true. That's not what happened here. And then he says, this is what was prophesied by Joel the prophet. And then he tells them the whole Jesus story and uh, calls upon them to respond. In fact, uh, Holy Spirit must have really used Peter at that time because uh, they, were, they were concerned as they listened to him and said, what, what do we have to do? And uh, I thought it was interesting, too. Uh, he referred to him as brother. You know, what, you know it's, it, it's, a, it's a setting within Judaism. These are Jewish people. Many of them are devout. And, and uh, those who have become disciples likewise are devout. And so they say, brothers, you know, what must we do in, in the context? And then Peter says that they need to repent and they need to be baptized. And about 3,000 people responds, it says, and so they became members together with the 120 and the New Testament church is born. Well, today we're going to look at what was going on in the church, what their activities were like, what their functions were. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to chapter 2 of Acts. And uh, I want to read that um, paragraph there that describes what is going on in the early church. I'm going to begin with verse 40 at the end of uh, Peter's sermon. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 40. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. And then it says those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added 
to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and at the many, awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Excitement, enthusiasm, vibrancy. Now some of the activities, well, I'd say many of the things going on here, of course, are beyond human control. You know, the miracles, you can't control miracles or you can't demand them. Uh, but there's other things that was happening that did not continue, uh, you know, uh, within human control, but they didn't continue. For example, uh, having all things in common, uh, selling their property and pooling the resources. We find as we keep reading in the New Testament, that didn't continue. But the generous hearts associated with that did. Uh, generous people. But then there are other things here again that are transferable. And I would argue not only transferable, but essential. Uh, functions that I think most church leaders would agree with me. Functions that should be happening in every church, in every place, and in every time. Uh, the teaching of the Word. The praising of the Lord. The fellowship, the close fellowship that they had. Uh, the breaking of bread. And uh, these are the kinds of things that were part of early church life and they are essentials in any functioning church and for us today as we consider our present and as we consider our future. But I'm going to begin with the one today. We're looking at the one that I believe we would consider the anchor point for the church, the compass, what is foundational for everything else, and that would be the teaching and the learning of God's Word. He says they uh, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And particularly here, it's the teaching, teachings that Jesus left with his disciples and specifically his apostles from within the group of disciples, many, many disciples, he selected 12 that would be with them all the time. And now there were 11 of them left. And so they would be the apostles. And so this is specifically the teachings that Jesus left with his apostles. And of course that becomes the, uh, I would say what's directly applicable to us today would be the apostles' teachings. Well, as we look at that, I have a very simple outline I want to follow I want to talk first of all about the teaching, something about the teaching, and then secondly about the learning 
and then some principles related to the relevance for us today. But regarding the teaching, the church was dedicated to the teaching of the apostles and directed by it, dedicated and directed. It says that they devoted themselves to this. I want to say that every group, every group endeavor needs some ground rules, like a statement of understanding about what the group is about, an objective point of reference, uh, dealing with things such as purpose and regulations, goals, vision, something that defines and directs the group. For them, this was the teaching of the apostles. The fellowship was built on Christ, but to know how to follow Christ, they needed the teaching. And that's what they were getting from the apostles. And you might say, well, why the apostles? Well, that's who Jesus devoted the larger part of his ministry time to. It was for the twelve that were chosen to be with him on a regular basis. And so he taught them especially. He taught the multitudes too, but he had special teaching for them. He modeled for them how to live kingdom lives. He prepared them. You could say that he discipled them. And he promised that the Holy Spirit would teach them and would bring to memory the things concerning him. A good thing. How could they remember everything? But, the, but he assured them the Holy Spirit would bring to memory things concerning himself. And so they were the ones who were especially enabled to pass on his teachings. They were the ones qualified to be in authority over the larger group. And their teachings, directed by the Holy Spirit, would eventually take the written form of the New Testament epistles. When the canon of Scripture was put together, one of the tests of whether a writing should be in the canon or not was, was it written by an apostle or was it written by someone, you know, who had close connection to an apostle. And so the apostles' teaching really became the, the New Testament for us as well. It says they devoted themselves to this. And that word means a steadfast and a single-minded fidelity they're really committed to this teaching, the teaching of the apostles. I think of the many examples where Jesus himself was an example of teaching and how significant and important it was to him. Uh, one case is Mark 10.1. Again, again, it says crowds of people came to him and then it says, as was his custom, he taught them. It was his custom and uh, another one that I, I, stands out for me, really, and that is uh, uh, Mark 6.34. It says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, when he saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. We're used to seeing how Jesus had compassion on people who were experiencing grief. People who are really having a hard time because things were happening to them or they were, le they were sick or ill or something. But here, uh, he has compassion when he sees 
how badly they need teaching because they're like sheep without a shepherd. You know, I suggest that that there's an evangelistic principle for us uh, in that very thing. We're living in a day and age where it's not a so much a guilt-ridden uh, society out there anymore. I think there was a time when, uh, when, when the gospel could especially appeal to people's sense of guilt. I would say not so much today. But here, here is something that resonates with people. You see how they, how they don't know how to live. And they bring such hurt and destruction and grief on themselves. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And how we need to reach out in compassion and somehow get behind that effort to help people to see how they can, you know, why are they bringing such pain upon themselves? Well, we need that today. A compassion that moves us to teach far and wide and for every age group. But then I'm thinking of that, uh, that great commission as recorded in Matthew, and we see here that these disciples, these apostles, are doing exactly what Jesus said that they should be doing. He said, make disciples from all nations, baptizing them. That's Matthew uh, 28, 18 uh, to 20. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then it says, teaching them. <laughs> Make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And that's exactly what they're doing here. Teaching them how to live according to uh, Jesus' uh, teachings. They become disciples for the most part. But undoubtedly, many others are, are there too that are being taught, you see. Uh, and uh, because the Lord keeps adding to the church, we see in verse 47, the teaching would be the compass of the church, the objective reference point, that compass, the North Star. Well, in the second place, I note that they, the people were learning together. They were learning in community, dedicated and directed there goes the table again. Well, that's okay. They, they've been there. They've done that. They know how to put it back up again. Um, you know, directed, dedicated by the teaching. But secondly, they were learning how together in community. And in this uh, text here that I, I read, it says they prayed together. They broke bread together. Praised God together. And in the same way, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but it was in community. They did it together. I'm, I'm all in favor of studying the Bible in the quietness of one's own life. And I know and I appreciate that I've been privileged to be able to do that for many, many years. And not only that, but I'm able to do it on company time. I'm actually paid to, imagine that, I'm paid to teach, to prepare, to study, and to teach God's Word. And I know that's a privilege. Just uh, on a side here, this is a, a digression here a little bit. But I, 
I was grateful when we visited our son in Langley, and he's on uh, staff. He's on uh, church staff in a big church there, and his responsibility is music. And he's gifted in music, and he's trained. And to think that he can use his gifts on <laughs> company time. We think that's wonderful. And I just want to say, I realize I'm privileged. And I'm all for that. But you know what? We need to learn in community, not just in isolation, to each his own, but it's a group function. God uses truth to both save and to develop Christians, but normally the truth comes to us through relational, in the relational dimension. We hear best, we are persuaded best, we are motivated best in the context of relationships. And so it was here. All of these things were together, including the learning of God's Word. Lone rangers have a way of getting off balance, missing some things, majoring on the minors and minoring on majors, reading things into the Scriptures that aren't really there, misapplying teachings. Church history has examples of people who have um, mutilated themselves as a way of applying the teaching of Scripture. I mean, what about it? What about Jesus' words where he says, if your eye offends, you pluck it out? And what if you were to, to say, you know what? I'm looking at things I have no right to look at, so I've prayed about it. I've decided I'm going to pluck my eye out. And you say, well, if the Holy Spirit is saying that to a person, what right have I got to interfere with that? And I say, don't do it. I do have a right to interfere with that kind of thing if I know about it. So you can be relieved. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? We can, when we are in isolation and we don't have the perspective of the group, we are in danger of misapplying Scripture as well as the other things I mentioned, majoring on the minors and so on and so forth. We need each other for perspective, for checks and balances. And I would go a little further and I would say that individual groups need to be connected. And again, groups in isolation can very well miss, the op miss what's there. And I believe church leaders today need to also be in touch with church history. I gave you one example. But we need to be aware of how God has led and the mistakes that churches have made in days of the past. There really isn't much new under the sun. And so we need that broader perspective. And we see that was happening here. They were... It together in this. And of course they had the privilege of hearing and responding to the teaching of those who had been with Christ. Dedicated to the apostles' teaching, they were learning in community. Well, the question of relevance. Why is this emphasis important today? And I have an A, B, and a C here. A is the Great Commission is still in effect. And part of the Great Commission is teaching them to obey all that I commanded. 
But the first part, it's almost like for our reading, we can, we can divide it almost into uh, two parts of an equation. The first part is, you know, baptizing them. Make disciples baptizing them. That's about outreach, evangelism. And then the second part is teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And so I want to say that it's relevant today because that great commission is still in effect. Now you say, what if, you know, just imagine for a little bit. I mean, here you have all these people. 3,000 plus and growing by the day. Wouldn't it have been more efficient if the apostles could said, you know, you guys, you're already saved. You're already filled with the Spirit. Get out there. Witness. Don't hang around here. You don't need us anymore. You're saved. But that was not the way. See, God was obviously interested not just in getting people saved, not just getting them into heaven, not that get saved mentality or that minimum requirement to make it to heaven syndrome. Our Lord never said, go and make converts, but he said, go and make disciples. And so the apostles here, directed by God's word, by the teaching of Christ, they were about not only seeing people saved, but people developed, becoming people who could be the presence of Jesus in the world. And that takes time. Why teach? Why is it relevant today? To be under the word, the Great Commission is still in effect. Secondly, and closely related to that, I would say it's relevant for us because disciples never graduate, okay? followers of Jesus, we, are, we need to be known as the perpetual student. We're never quite there. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. If you're a parent and you've ever been in a car where you went on a longer trip and the children were with you, you've heard it more than once from the back seat are we almost there? And the teaching here is we're never going to be quite there. As disciples, we never graduate. You can become a Christian quickly. In fact, the 3,000 that responded, it was all in one day. I think most people today need more time than that, but that can happen quite quickly. But you see, to become an effective disciple takes, well, takes the rest of your life. Just keep on growing. You never graduate. It was just a matter of learning content. That would happen more quickly. I mean, uh, think of someone who has a photographic memory. <clears throat> My goodness, how they could learn all this content quickly, overnight. But it's not just about content. It's to, be, it's to learn to obey. It's about transformation. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. That's the goal. Come like the teacher to become Christ-like. Disciples never graduate. Many people seem to assume that Christian education is especially for children and young people. And, you know, I'm so glad we have our children and young people that are being taught today. But 
it's for all ages, whatever form the teaching takes. And there's a sense in which it is even more important for the adults because they're the ones who become the workers. They're ready to become the workers as they, as they are being taught. And that's what we have here. And so you never graduate because it's about becoming like Christ and obeying everything. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 has a, has a wonderful um, information, explanation about this. It says that all Scripture is God-breathed. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for, here we go, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, And then it talks about the purpose or the outcome so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Or uh, another translation has uh, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient. Competent is the idea. Equipped for every good work. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's, it's for serving the Lord. It's for being a certain kind of person here when you look at these words here. It talks about righteousness, training in righteousness. And so it isn't only about service. It's about being a certain kind of person. Behavior, serving, character quality, every good work. Both behavior and capacity to minister. In, uh, in a book uh, called Healing for Damaged Emotions, David uh, Siemens has a delightful story about a man named Charlie Steinmetz. Uh, he had one of the greatest minds in the field of electricity that the world has ever known. He built the great genera- generators for Henry Ford in his first plant. And one day those generators broke down and the plant came to a halt. Ordinary mechanics couldn't get the generators going again. So Ford called Steinmetz. The genius came. He seemed to just putter around for a few hours. Then he threw the switch that put the great plant back into operation. A few days later, Henry Ford received a bill from Charles Steinmetz for $10,000. Ford, even though he's very rich, he returned the bill with a note. Charlie, isn't this bill just a little high for a few hours tinkering around on those motors? Steinmetz, Steinmetz returned the bill to Ford. This time it read, For tinkering around on the motors, $10. For knowing where to tinker, $9,990. It's a matter of competence. And that's what (laughs) this is here, you know, that the man of God, that the woman of God may be proficient, competent. And so it's like God is speaking through Paul here saying to Timothy, Uh, You know, as a leader among my people, as a servant leader, the Scriptures will make you competent. You You will well able to help those who serve me. Uh, So that, you know, through the teaching of my Word, my people will be taught, rebuked, corrected. So it's, and they too will be competent. It's like Timothy himself. And then the people he teaches will be 
effective workers, servants, effective because of their characters, because of their Christ-likeness. So mentioned recently, today it seems so common in our secular society to assume that our faith is a private matter, something for church alone, and of course, you know, with your own group and in, at home and so on. But the teaching here, the teaching of the apostle that makes us competent, proficient, it's for all of life, all of life, work, play, marriage, children. It informs what we call a Christian worldview, a way of thinking, a way of forming opinions. It becomes lenses through which we view all of life, a grid through which we can filter all our significant choices, an integrated way of living, tying it all together with Jesus Christ at the center, a worldview affects everything. And so, yeah, we never graduate. We need to keep on learning because it is such a complete system, really. The relevance, Great Commission, still in effect. Disciples never graduate. Graduate. There's one more. And that is directly applicable right now to our discussions with a gathering And that is we need the teaching. We need good teaching, careful teaching, so that we can better distinguish between things that really matter, things that really are essential, and the things that are simply our preferences. And I know from all of my observations through the years and reading and stuff that there's a tendency for believers to make their preferences or their own interpretation of Scripture into absolutes. Uh, The making of man-made rules, for example, into absolutes, which is a perfect definition of legalism. Legalism is where you make man-made rules into into God's Word or requirements. (laughs) You know, but if we're distracted by those kind of things, it keeps us from the things that are especially important. Many years ago, there was a a saying that uh, I think was often repeated uh, sort of facetiously or with humor, and that was uh, the seven last last words of the church. Any of you remember hearing about that? What are the seven last words of the church? And here's what they said. We've never done it that way before. It's like, the seven last words of the church, we've never done it that way and we're not about to start now. (laughs) Sometimes the old way, it's essential. It's almost like it becomes God's word to us and we're not willing to change. The old way seen as an absolute. But a careful teaching and learning of the Scriptures Careful teaching and learning of the Apostles' Word will help us to distinguish between what is essential and what is simply our preferences or the things we would like to see. With a willingness, with a willingness to adapt and to be relevant into today's world. And you know where that starts? 
I suggest that it starts with a surrendered heart that wants more than anything else God's will rather than my preference. Pastor Leith Anderson has a helpful comment. He says, while the New Testament speaks often about churches, it is surprisingly silent about many matters that we associate with church structure and life. There's no mention of architecture or pulpits or lengths of sermons or sermons even or rules for having Sunday school. Little is said about style of music, order of worship, or times of church gatherings. Those who strive to be New Testament churches must seek to live its principles and absolutes, not reproduce the details. Those who strive to be New Testament churches must seek to live its principles and its absolutes, but not reproduce, not worry about the details. And you see, those considerations give us the freedom to adapt and to be relevant, to accept the inevitable changes. When all is said and done, it's all about authority. The ultimate authority is Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is our enthroned Lord. He is the King. He is our authority. But to follow Him, we need to hear His Word and to be like the early church where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Let's pray, and then we want to sing a song about uh, being God's people. <clears throat> Lord, <clears throat> help us to look positively at what you have left us. You have left us, you have given us the responsibility, the privilege of being your people. And Father, help us to have hearts that are completely surrendered to your authority. And then may we have minds that can be alert and recognize the differences between what is simply our preferences and the things that are essential according to your word. Father, we ask for hearts that are responsive to you. Pray now that you would also go before us, bless us as we have table fellowship, eat around, eat food together, and then as we go into discussions. We ask it with an acknowledgement of our dependence on you. In Jesus' name, amen.